I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is a CEO who has just started in post at one of the London market's longest-running independent broking houses. As one would expect, James Hands of Miller is full of energy and ideas on how to continue the broker's impressive run of growth. James is a broker's broker, and our discussion rarely beats around the bush. He tends to get straight to the point. Miller is going to grow organically and by acquisition, but it's going to keep a laser-like focus on client need, culture, and playing to the broker's specialist wholesale insurance and reinsurance strengths. We run through how the tough market is playing out for Miller and its clients, whether third-party capital backing has changed the firm's culture, and how the group is reacting to the major technological changes that are transforming the way business is done across broad swathes of the market. James is excellent company, and gives the impression of an open-minded and pragmatic leader, very comfortable with where his business is and where its strategy is likely to be taking it in the future. Enjoy the podcast. James, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you, Mark. Delighted to be here. How long have you been in the post here at Miller? I have been about three weeks or three and a half weeks, so very fresh. But fortunately, we had a six-month transition last year as uh, we began this process. So as much as I've stepped up from the 1st of January, I had a nice lead-in with Greg and a very orderly handover last year. You're the new broom. So how might your leadership style be different from that of your predecessors? Well, my leadership style isn't going to change. And what is my leadership style? It's a very inclusive style. I enjoy working with talented people who are motivated, ambitious, passionate around what they do. And I've got that in spades here at Miller. I've got lots of different ideas and opportunities and and things I want to do as we go forward. And I take over at such a strong time for Miller. We've had a fabulous run. Company is in great shape. So really, it's evolution rather than revolution. Running a broker, I think there's always been two types of broker CEO, either the one who's the absolute clear that they are the top dog and everything they say goes, and the other one that is quite good at herding all the different cats that are part of the organization. I presume you're more the latter. I think so, yes. My career throughout has been with clients and focusing on them. So my leadership will be through a client lens. Everything we're going to be doing and every development we make, every change we take will be focused on around what's best for our clients. You said you've got plans of things you want to do. Why don't you give me the highlights of, of the main things at the top of your agenda then? I think really it's as we were, but at a sort of gear change in terms of our accelerated growth. This is what our new investment partners have enabled us to do. We've had a tremendous 2022. We've just finished our financial year. We made 11% organic growth. We made overall growth of 17%, which is a combination of our M&A activity that we took out last year as well. Our new hires delivered 2% organic growth. So all in all, we've had a fabulous 2022. And 2023 and beyond is really just more of the same, but at an ever-quickening pace. So we will continue to stick to our knitting, which is specialty, very disciplined around that. So whether it be our BAU hiring, whether it be our investment hiring or our M&A activity, it will always be in those specialty areas that we see as very millery in them. BAU, that's management talk for business as usual. So that's regular stuff. So to replenish the stocks of classes that you're already absolutely core to hiring people and replacing people and reinvesting or growing those classes that are core. And ones that you differentiate some as being investment ones. Investment ones are there because they're new to you or is that really how you see it? We hired 12 new teams last year, which is a combination of moving into new specialty areas or doubling down in specialty areas where we already had uh, existing teams, 
further expanded and deepened the bench on those. So it's a combination of those two, but again, always in that specialty space. And what about the market at the moment? It's a fascinating market. We've had a very hard reinsurance renewal. It seems to be the final piece of the puzzle that's come into line. Obviously, that specialty market's been hardening for the last four or five years, let's say. And reinsurance was a bit of a puzzler because obviously insurance had been hardening, retro had been hardening, ILS had been hardening. And then finally, it seems that at this point in the cycle, reinsurance dug its heels in absolutely and reset itself at 1-1. How's that affecting those specialty classes that you're in? Are you seeing things starting to fall out? And presumably, it's also throwing up loads of new opportunities. A business of the size of Miller, we have an incredibly diverse product offering. So yes, the market conditions have affected us. I think it's affected every line of business almost without exception. But the diversification that we have provides us with a really strong, resilient base. So yes, there's been impact in certain areas greater than others. However, we've been able to capitalize on opportunities that have come out of that. So all in all, yes, it's a difficult climate, but Miller is all about specialty. And in these times of challenge, I think our clients value us more than ever. We're able to really highlight the value we bring, which in softer market conditions, aren't as great the difference in the value. It's sometimes easier to get things done without being that real specialist. I think other brokers can achieve things, but ultimately these conditions give us greater opportunity. So is it fair enough, yes, to say that when you're a specialist broker, hard markets, that's the time you can really differentiate yourself because anyone can place business in a soft market. Totally agree. Totally agree. And you're saying whilst the market's reset its pricing and a lot of its different appetites, it's not stymieing growth in some ways that you're still able to get things done just that the price and the terms and conditions on which that business is now going to be written has changed fundamentally. But there's still appetite. Is it right to say that once you get the structure and the pricing right, then there's still the appetite there? In some really difficult markets, of course, you can't really grow because the market isn't there anymore. Yes, I think depending on the class of business, some of it is around price, some of it's around retention levels, some of it's around coverage. If you look at our marine book, this is not only price, it's probably more importantly it's around the coverage and the issues around the war in Ukraine. This has a significant effect on the global supply chain. So this is a really, really pertinent point to focus on. In a US property cat, you know, that's clearly had a really tough time. There are ways of still supporting clients by pivoting how you're providing those solutions. So you've got the solutions, they're still available. It's just there's a lot more work or the things have to be restructured, done in different ways. Yes, it's being creative and looking at the challenges ahead of you and working out how it can solve them best for the customer. Obviously, you're not just operating in London. Um, obviously we'd probably think of you as a London business, but obviously you're in various hubs around the world. How's London been faring, relatively speaking, against other hubs as this market has changed? Historically, Miller has been very tied to the London market throughout our history. And we were 120 years last year. We've been very London-centric. But we're expanding our international footprint for various reasons. Some of that is getting closer to our distribution. Some of that is also accessing domestic markets that may provide better solutions and more appropriate solutions than the London market can. So ultimately, that comes back to the point I made at the beginning. We will always make decisions through a client lens. You know, what is the best outcome for our customer? So with our international expansion, this does enable us to reduce our reliance on London. And we found that the domestic markets have at times been a more appropriate solution. But equally, it's important for me probably to add here that we will not expand our international presence to North America, where we're very much a wholesale broker in, in our setup. And obviously, we're in this tough reinsurance market throughout the, the experience of being owned and then now becoming totally independent again of Willis. The reinsurance arm, I do remember, was one of the parts that did properly merge with Willis for the rest of the time. You stayed wholly independent as just part of that Willis group, as an independent wholesaler within that group. 
now that the reinsurance market is absolutely centre of the action again, is it something you're getting back into? Is it something that you miss, you wish it never gone in the first place? Once we removed Willis from Miller's partnership, one of the first things we did was re-enter the reinsurance marketplace. We see it as an important and a valuable product offering to have. Having said that, our approach is in line with all of our other Miller mentalities that it needs to be complex, it needs to be specialty. We're not looking to compete with the big three, four global. So you're not going to be rocking up to some tender for a global multinational insurer that wants to be serviced in 120 different countries? No, that's not us. <laughs> we're, we're a mile away from that. But we see opportunity in the more complex specialty areas, and that's where we'll continue to focus and continue to develop the business. So it's a natural progression of what you're already doing. And sometimes as a specialist broker, you can see that there might be reinsurers who are going to support some of those underwriters that you already supply, that you do a huge amount of business with. And so it's only natural that you would go and help support those underwriters because you've got the data, you've got that Yeah, we've got the knowledge, we've got the sector experience, we've got the quality and the, and the experience of the team. So therefore, we can add a discernible value beyond what a more sizable operation can, which is maybe less attention to detail on the specialty area. So you shouldn't think of you as being a challenger reinsurance broker. It's just reinsurance broking is part of specialty broking ultimately in many circumstances. And that's the way we should think about it. It's just being, it's part of what you do. It's part of what we do and it'll be an important part of what we do, but always through that specialty lens. Time for an ad break. We'll get back to the podcast after this very brief message. So much has changed in the last few years, not least in Bolton Associates' world of recruiting actuaries and insurance. There is more and more need for actuaries and cap modellers Demand is outstripping supply. But this is not the first time we've seen this. Bolton Associates has operated in this market for over 20 years. We know what attracts candidates to roles and what matters in this hybrid working world. We're having conversations with firms all needing actuaries, be they syndicates, MGAs, brokers. They need pricing actuaries, heads of capital, reserving specialists. Plus the larger players looking at restructures are asking us to find group roles, such as CRO, chief actuary and some CFOs. The actuarial skill set really does now reach all levels of the board. In 2022, several senior actuaries took the CEO role, with more to come in 2023, so watch this space. And this is where the Bolton Associates Network comes into play. We can build your actuarial function and also draw on our established network to find those actuaries who have skills not only with numbers, but with leadership, people and specific insurance knowledge. 2023 has many exciting events for Bolton Associates coming up keeping the market linked up, engaged and hopefully having a bit of fun. We're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So if you want us to find your elusive actuary, fresh new juniors or hear which firms are looking after their staff, then do get in touch. We're on Lime Street, so we're pretty easy to find, unlike that reinsurance pricing actuary you're currently struggling to hire. Let's speak soon. Get in touch at bolton-associates.co.uk. And you mentioned about those investment classes as you're budgeting for 23, 24, where are you placing your biggest bets on those investment dollars? I suppose we'll put it into three buckets. I mean, there's our organic growth, which will always be our most important. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we invested in 12 new teams last year, which are either new specialties or existing specialties that we already have teams focused on. And then the M&A expansion that we did two acquisitions last year, we set ourselves a target of 15 to 20% of acquired EBITDA year on year. Those territories that we're focusing on are the UK, Europe, and Asia. We bought one broker in France last year called Henna Sport and a broker in Japan called Lead, who is a marine broker. So two of the specialty areas at Miller really have tremendous strength. Culturally aligned with us, they're in the specialties we really know very well and that we feel we have a very strong lead position on. 
And so it'll continue on those three themes, both this year and beyond. This is something that is different, isn't it? That you've got this private equity backing and you're not shy of M&A, but it's right to just say that that M&A, though, is going to be very much to complement the specialties that you're in. It's not just to put numbers on it. Obviously, we'll put numbers on, but it's going to be to complement if it's something that you're already a leading specialist in, then to, if you find that, and that's mostly going to be territorial, one presumes. The first thing we'll look at on an M&A target is the people and the culture, because we have to preserve what is a very unique culture and a very special culture. So we will go through that process first, and then assuming that works and that fits, then it's around either an existing specialty and complementing that, or it's a new specialty that we recognize as one that there's long-term value. And then obviously the synergies that we could potentially bring to that potential target if and when they became part of Miller. I suppose because you're still a limited liability partnership, aren't you? I suppose you still have that sort of partnership mentality that you don't want to partner with someone that you don't want to partner with. Yes. We're in a minority of not many in terms of, you know, our, our, we have one P&L across all of Miller. So that drives a very strong culture that every client of Miller gets the very best that Miller has to offer. There's no silos. There's no people looking after their own area only. The customer gets the best that Miller can bring to the table. And what sort of balance should we expect between organic and M&A fueled growth? What is the ideal balance or, or is it you just take it as it comes? We've set ourselves a target of 15 to 20% of our annual EBITDA as acquired. So that will be in addition to our organic and our continual team investment. Wow. So you're actively seeking. We are actively seeking. We have recently appointed a new head of M&A. As I said, we completed two transactions last year. We expect to do between four and six a year is probably our average. And it's a big part of our future. Is it likely to be in other territories, you know, not in London, one presumes? The areas we're focusing on are the UK, Europe and Asia. They are our M&A targeted areas. Now, there could be opportunities that come along that are outside of those areas. But as our strategic plan, that's where we're focusing. And I suppose the ideal target is probably a wholesaler in some sense, because they're probably very specialist. They're not likely to be a retailer. Yes. Again, we've got to keep our disciplines. We're not looking at growth at any cost. This has to be in our specialty lanes or in a lane of specialty that we see as long-term sustainable. And I think when I spoke to your predecessor last, one of the things that came out of it was we were talking about the explosion in MGAs. And it seems that something that Miller hasn't really gone down the road of. Lots of other broken groups have done this, particularly when they've got a lot of specialism as well, particularly in wholesale, to also become the underwriter of some of these, to have an MGA division that is a big arm of a lot of your peers. Is that something that you're still shying away from? We should expect you to stay as more of a pure broker rather than underwriter. It's something we've looked at in the past, and it's something that we're looking at at the moment, and something we will continue to keep a close eye on. If the right opportunity comes along, we will execute. But again, it falls under that same strategy. The culture's got to be right. It's got to be in a specialty. We've got to see long-term value, and it's got to be complementary. So we could see this. We could see this. Potentially, as I said, if the right opportunity came along, we're not afraid of that step change. Yes, because I don't know what you make of this. The growth, it's almost that there has been a secular change within the way that certain forms of insurance are distributed, because we're talking about billions of dollars of premium moving from one avenue to another. Yeah, it's just another source of distribution. And that's obviously key for us. And how do we get closer to and how do we drive more distribution? And, and this is obviously one that we're looking closely at. As a broker, Miller, you're in a quite a good sweet spot in many ways, because you're big enough to have resources to do lots of things that perhaps some of the bigger brokers can do and that smaller brokers can't do. But you're small enough to have that focus around how you do it. So what have you made of this insure tech 
phenomenon that's happened in the last five or six years? And how have you tried to make the most of some of the technological innovations that have been going on and the huge amount of investments been going into people spending a lot of time looking at insurance and trying to apply technology and make it more efficient, etc.? I mean, we'd be crazy not to look at technology and data and how it can improve our offering. But I think what's really important is that you look at it from the client end and then work backwards rather than look at it in terms of what can it do for us. The focus needs to be on what can it do for the client. And once you understand that, and if you really invest your time in working that through, then you can develop solutions and enhancements and efficiencies that are ultimately more valuable. So that is our approach that, yes, we're heavily invested in it. We've continued to invest more and more into our technology, but it's always from starting at the client end rather than what's in it for us. And do you go at it in terms of being open to partners? Because so many other people have made the investment. It seems we're very lucky that technologists have discovered insurance in the last five or six years, and they've invested billions of dollars in providing solutions that some of them are perhaps solutions looking for a problem. And others are really great. And so have you been able to be more of that position of rather than developing your own technology, have you been more partnering with others? We haven't partnered with others. I mean, we had developed our own technology over years, as you'd imagine, and often they're market-leading solutions. A good example is our BOAS system that we designed for our marine clients to help ship owners operating in war zones. So that's been around for about 15 years, and it's a good example of how we develop and invest in technology to help customers. Wow. So you have a specific problem that the customer's got, and obviously, you know, your customer, then you focus on that and then you try and solve it using technology rather than then coming up with a load of technology and then trying to apply it. Then, yes, which is the wrong way around. Yeah. So we've had this boom in people saying, right, we're going to use blockchain to do something in insurance. And, and now, as far as I can see, all of those things have been dissolved because blockchain wasn't necessarily something that the insurance needed. No, the broad brush approach just doesn't work, but it's got to be tailored. We've seen algorithmic underwriting appear in the London market with an algorithmic syndicate and underwriters using technology to triage a lot of their work and help target things that are within appetite. And what do you think should be the broker response to that? I suppose anything they can do, you should be able to do slightly better being a top broker. Do you need to sort of reverse engineer all these people's algorithms so that you know exactly what they're going to say before you start and then root your business technologically as well to get the best price? There's been algorithmic underwriting for many years, particularly in the... It's just called a rating book. A rating book, that's right. But I think for us, the human element within specialty is so vital. Miller's greatest assets will always be our people. And as much as we want to embrace and continue to embrace anything that might be advantageous or improving the process and speeding up the process, making it more efficient, the human element to what we do is so, so vital. And I can't see that changing. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't rule out something like digital distribution where it makes sense to do so. For example, you know, if it's SME business and it's high volume, high policy count, low premium per policy type stuff, and it might happen to be in a specialty class, but you can distribute business that you wouldn't normally otherwise be able to do and it would be too inefficient for you to do. You wouldn't discount that though, would you? No, we wouldn't. I mean, again, if it ticks our specialty box and we can accelerate the volume and create more distribution, then obviously technology can play a big part in it. So you're always looking to streamline things where you can or where it makes sense to do so, but you don't want to lose that bespoke element and that sort of high touch with your core customers. That's correct. But the business has evolved quite a lot over the last few years. You know, we hired a high net worth team. By definition, you know, that that's more of a volume play than large commercial. So we need technology suppose, to support yeah. But also by definition, they're quite unique, aren't they? Each yeah, high net worth of an individual is different. So that's not what we're looking to achieve. But there is potential to in- enhance and make more efficient the process. And that's obviously- I suppose, yeah. I mean, you've got to list, list all the nice paintings on the wall of a nice house 
or a series of quite nice houses, one presumes, all over the world and yachts and things. If you can apply technology to get those valuations done quickly, it, then it, yeah, presumably you can add quite a lot of value that way. Absolutely. And if you can make the renewal process simpler and smoother, and if you have real-time access to your policy documentation, that's got to be better. Real-time access to claims process, that's got to be an improvement. So those are, those are the types of things. We shouldn't think of you as a technology company. You should think of you as a broking company and a very customer-centric company first. But tech is part of the toolkit. Absolutely right, yes. The biggest change in Miller, obviously, has been the ownership. Private equity, does it present a problem to you as you project Miller out into the world? Because, let's say, before Willis, you could project Miller as being an incredibly traditional partnership model business that would almost guarantee continuity and conservatism with a small c. But that would be something that you could say with absolute conviction. Any customer would be able to say exactly what you see is what you get. Private equity, does it slightly muddy the waters in terms of what people now see you as? I don't think so. I should say that we are part private equity invested and part GIC, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore. So we're not entirely private equity invested in. But the two investment partners we have 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 enabled us to do so many more things all at the same time effectively because of the financial firepower they provided. So they have been tremendously supportive of all the progress we've made. And the progress we're making, though, to come back to your question, isn't a deviation from what we would have done as Old Miller, but it's just that we're doing all of it at the same time. We can do it quicker. And we can do it quicker. And there's nothing other than the M&A piece, sorry, which really we haven't traditionally been in that world. Our history of 121 years now has been through organic growth and targeted individual and team hires. That's really how we've got to where we are today. But now we're doing just so much more and we're into the M&A space. So that's all been achievable through the support we've had from Simbin and GIC. But does it set the clock ticking in some way that there's always a sort of every five years, seven years or whatever, wherever it is, you feel that there's a clock ticking somewhere in your office looking down and you're thinking, right, have I done what I need to do in year two, year three, year four, year five? And to know that by year five, do I need to find someone else to take on from original investors and follow on investment, that kind of thing? Does it distract you in any way, perhaps? No, not at all. They understand that we need to be able to focus on the business to grow it as fast as we possibly can and to be as successful as they want us to be and, and as we equally want to be. So clearly, that you know, there is a clock ticking somewhere, but that's not our gift to give. You know, we've just got to focus on taking the business forward as fast as we possibly can, but also while keeping our discipline. You know, it's not about growth at any cost. This is very, very targeted. And would the preferred model be with the sort of model where investors can leave and others can come in, but nothing actually changes on the coalface? Potentially, that could be an outcome, yes. But I think everything's up for grabs. Obviously, we talk a lot about this war for talent. Does it put some doubt in any candidates' minds that think, well, I might join this company as it is today, but in five years' time, of course, there's some inherent instability there to say, well, well, I don't know who's going to own it in five years' time. There is a war for talent. That's well known. I think what do we as Miller represent? I think we are a beacon of stability. I think the management of Miller, you know, the group executive and all the way downwards, is led by brokers, you know, by practitioners, by people who understand Miller, who have often been here a very long time. They understand the clients, they understand what we're here to provide. So that gives tremendous certainty around our future. You know, we understand the role of Miller, what's made it so successful. And I think anyone looking at Miller as a potential home for them should be looking at it very fondly. I mean, we, in my mind, you know, and I've worked at a couple of companies before Miller, but if you're in specialty, and you're any good, you know, you should be at Miller. That's my message. Simple as that. We've got such a tremendous platform for talent in the specialty areas. And there's so much security and stability around what we're doing. It's really a, a knockout setup. 
I suppose you've already been through quite a lot and you've maintained a fierce independence, even having been part of the wider Willis group and come through all that. So is that the other part of the pitch as well? We've already been through quite a lot anyway. Have you really seen anything change? Yeah, very good point to make. You've gone from strength to strength despite some difficulties under those Willis years. But now look at the bounce back and we're so positive around the future. What about the economy? Is it starting to temper ideas of growth because we might be entering a recessionary environment? So seeing some of the early reporting of some of perhaps the US quoted brokers, a bit of a slowdown. Is that going to affect your end of the market, do you think? The insurance industry and the broken fraternity within that is so resilient. And it almost seems like whatever happens, we just seem to carry on regardless almost. So I think it's a remarkable industry in the main anyway. I think dial that down into just specialty areas. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, there are difficulties, but we don't really foresee too many challenges because of the economic. Would you think that because the world seems to be getting more risky, more complex, that it's playing into your hands, there's just going to be more specialty risk? The more specialty risk in a very challenging market environment, the client needs a broker who understands that space more than ever. So for us, these difficult times, we can really, really support our customers. Perhaps to sum up, so it's a difficult market. We might see you acquire in different parts of the world and here. And also we might see you helping to form some underwriting capital as well to help solve some of those client problems. Anything else you should add to that list? I think it's probably enough on my plate for the time being. <laughs> no, I think just more of the same. You know, we've got a real momentum across all areas of our business. And as I said, we see a very, very bright future ahead for us. Thanks very much for your time. And we'll have to book in some more time in the future if you're going to hit all these growth targets. So you're going to be a much bigger business even this time next year or, or the year afterwards. So. Good luck hitting all those targets and do make sure you come back and chat to us at The Voice of Insurance. I will do. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in The Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.